Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Fiery rhetoric, China hits back after Trump threatens more tariffs. Investors yawn. Beyond its valuation, JP Morgan goes neutral on Beyond Meat after its sizzling post-IPO stock surge and styling the next unicorn. The CEO of e-retailer Poshmark joins to discuss the firm's plans to disrupt Amazon and Pinterest. All in a day's work. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome to the show where I tell you morose May has turned into jubilant June. Thanks very much to Jay Powell. Of course, stocks up for five straight sessions in a row here in the United States. And it looks like we could add to that too, at least at the market open right now. US futures are in the green. The Nasdaq outperforming. Keep at least half an eye on DC today as Congress begins hearings on antitrust concerns later on today. My read on this, wake me up in a few years when you're ready to act. Someone who is wide awake though right now, Fed Chair Jay Powell, as I've mentioned, hopes that the Fed will make a so-called insurance rate cut, meaning the S&P 500 is now just 2% away from recent record highs. My question remains, can the Fed cut rates when we're just 2% away from record highs, particularly when consumer confidence, so pivotal to the economy here, is held in pretty well? Goldman Sachs agree. They said in the last 24 hours that they don't believe the Fed will even cut rates this year. Then you watch the markets. Speaking of markets, Chinese stocks also had a great session overnight. Beijing announcing fresh measures to help fund local infrastructure projects. It's just hard to know what's additional here and what's already been sums allocated to these kind of projects. So I'm a bit sceptic on this one. A lot, of course, relies on progress being made between the two presidents at the G20, as we've discussed timeless on uh, timeless accounts and occasions on this show. The Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross, saying on uh, CNBC earlier today that a deal will eventually be made. As I mentioned yesterday, though, the fact that the U.S. is using trade tariffs to tackle other issues like migrant flows from Mexico could make a deal harder to reach. Check this. The Chinese ambassador to India said overnight that Southeast Asian countries should support what he calls the global trade order and push back on, quote, the United States abuse of tariff measures. Interesting. On that note, let's get to the drivers because Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, more rhetoric flying thick and fast between China and the United States. It could be any day over the last three months. And yet stocks just 2% away from record highs. Are stock investors losing it or are they just too reliant (laughs) on Jay Powell here? You know, they're too reliant on Jay Powell here, but also the American economy, while showing some signs of fraying at the seams, is still over well moving nicely here. I mean, you've got more open uh, open jobs in America than you have job seekers by the biggest margin ever. So the American labor market, even even with that weak jobs report on Friday, uh, is still strong. You've got inflation low, as the president was was tweeting about um, this morning. And you make a very good point, Julia. Um, does the Fed have justification to cut interest rates here when you're just so close to record highs 10 years into uh, an economic recovery with still all of that stimulus in the system still? Um, you know, I mean, I just think that maybe taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture here uh, and the Fed doesn't just 
uh, operate for the benefit of the stock market, right? I mean, it, it just doesn't. It, it benefits for the, uh, for, the, for the overall economy here. And so I think that maybe patience might be a little bit warranted. 70%, and we look at Fed Funds futures, and they're, they're betting out, what, like a 70% chance of a rate cut in July? That seems pretty optimistic. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more with you. I'm being a bit facetious here throwing it around. But as you point out, the stock market here is not the economy. And we have to bring it back to the fundamentals. My right. fear is that you know, Jay Powell's kind of backed himself into a corner here, or at least being backed into one by the markets. One of the interesting data points I saw this morning, the NFIB Small Business Optimism Index, the best reading since October, but within the details, many observers arguing that the economy needs another artificial stimulus from the Federal Reserve. So even when the data looks good in terms of optimism, the sort of counter to it is, again, they're relying on the Federal Reserve here too. It worries me if the Fed don't act. Ironically, the President of the United States today, when he was a candidate, complained about the sugar rush of artificial stimulus in the economy, that it wasn't fair and that it was going to lead to problems down the road. Today, he's all about the sugar rush in the economy, the lower rates, uh, very different. Uh, that was then. This is now kind of uh, of story here. But think about it. For 10 years, the market, the stock market has been addicted to cheap money. Right. And the Fed was trying to orchestrate first through Ben Bernanke and then through uh, Janet Yellen and now through Jay Powell, kind of a a reordering of of what's going to be normal in 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 Fed policy vis-a-vis the economy in the U.S. And we're not we're still not there yet. Yeah, we are certainly not willing to let go of that punch bowl right now, that stimulus punch bowl firmly within our grasps. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. All right. Let's move on and talk Huawei court at the heart of the battle over trade between the United States and China. The company overnight saying that it will have to, quote, quote, wait a little longer to overtake Samsung as the world's biggest smartphone maker. Sharice Pham joins me now. We've had some mixed messages, some bravado from Huawei in the past, but at least on this metric, they're acknowledging that actually this is just going to push the timetable back some. This is really one of the first times I've heard them acknowledge that their bottom line is actually hurting from this U.S.-led campaign against them. They had said back in January that they were going to overtake Samsung by the end of the year. And now to say that they'll have to wait a little bit longer is actually pretty optimistic. I was talking to an analyst today and she said if Huawei gets off the entity list or if there are positive developments by August, i.e. after the, uh, the reprieve from the Commerce Department, uh, expires, then maybe Huawei could hold on to its number two position above Apple and below Samsung. But if it's on that entity list for much longer, it could slip. So it could slip down to third, fourth, or who even knows even further, because Huawei smartphones will be a lot less attractive to international consumers if it doesn't have access to that U.S. tech, if it doesn't have access to the software like Google and Facebook and Instagram, all those companies saying that they have to restrict Huawei's access to their tech now. So. We shall see. And again, Huawei admitting that this is hurting their business, it's quite a development here. You make a great point about Google, and even Google or Alphabet themselves are pushing back here and saying, look, not allowing us to push forward with these kind of updates and have Huawei accessing the infrastructure that they provide here could introduce backdoor security risks here. Do you think that kind of pushback clearly it argues that the point that Huawei's making that they continue to want to be able to use this technology but do you think that is in some way listened to by the the US government here that they recognize that they're at risk of introducing dangers here too 
I mean, I, I think there are probably some reasonable people in the Trump administration that are <laughs> acknowledging that, that that is a potential risk, right? If, if Huawei is, and this is the argument that Google has reportedly made, if Huawei is allowed to build a hybrid version of its operating system, which will most likely rely on some version of the open source Android operating system, that will be something that will be even more vulnerable to hackers because Android's operating system is already much more vulnerable than Apple's iOS. So it really puts the Trump administration between a rock and a hard place. And it certainly puts the Commerce Department in a difficult position when President Donald Trump is continually coming out and saying that uh, uh, a deal for Huawei could be included in a broader U.S.-China trade deal. So it makes everyone wonder, is the, is the campaign against Huawei really about national security or is this just a geopolitical move? We'll have to wait and see if Huawei gets off this entity list because they should be kept separate. They should be in separate lanes. But that is like, like you said, Huawei is sending mixed signals about its business. The Trump administration is sending mixed signals about its stance on Huawei. You make such a great point. And Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary over in Asia in the last 24 hours, saying that these two things are separate. We'll see. Sharice Pham, we'll see. thank you so much for that. And we got the dress memo once again today. Hot oh, pink. my goodness. I can't believe yes, it. Yes, we did. I know. <laughs> thank you. Just mind readers. <laughs> Let's move on. Beyond Meat under pressure pre-market, down some 11% following a downgrade to neutral from JP Morgan. But it's OK because the stock has risen almost 70%, 7-0 in the last two sessions. Paul LaMonica has all the details. Paul, the technical term for this is squeezy. More than half the float of these stocks have been shorted now with investors thinking it's just moved too far, too fast. What are JP Morgan saying? Yeah, JP Morgan has been bullish on Beyond Meat. They raised their price target just last week. And keep in mind, obviously, it makes sense that they're bullish because they were one of the underwriters for the IPO. But the analyst at J.P. Morgan writing in his report today saying that basically the stock price has now valued in bullish projections for the next 10 years that might be unreasonable. He said that, you know, at this valuation, you're assuming that Beyond Meat can generate five billion in sales in 2029. And he's not comfortable saying that the company is definitely going to be able to do that. So this is a stock that I think has uh, you know, gotten to be uh, beyond bubblicious, if you will. <laughs> beyond bubblicious. I agree. I mean, we're now talking about a company that has got more than a $10 billion market cap. And I, I look at some of the people that are looking at the broader industry, even the growth prospects out to 2025, and they say this is a $22 billion industry. More than $10 billion, $22 billion entire industry in some seven, eight years time. I mean, even just when you look at that metric, however excited you are about the prospects of this company, um, you surely have to be a bit cautious here. Exactly. It really is all about valuation. The stock price is ahead of itself based on the projections for the growth of this industry. And don't get me wrong, the growth rate for plant-based protein is phenomenal. And I, I'm not being a bear on that particular business per se. I enjoy Impossible Burgers, and I think that's a key issue here. Everyone latches on to anytime Impossible has made an announcement that has been good news for them, Beyond Meat stock goes up. I'm not so sure, Julia, that's rational. At some point, especially if Impossible goes public at one point down the road, 
you have to look at the two companies as being competitive. So in the same way that, you know, if Coke does something positive, that may not be great news for Pepsi. You might have to feel the same way about impossible gaining momentum that could hurt beyond me. Yeah, it's not about shifting market share right now. It's all just a big PR opportunity and announcements are floating all boats here. It's going to be interesting to see when that stops happening, to your point. Paul and Monica, thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we are following around the world. One of Hong Kong's biggest trade unions is urging people to take to the streets Wednesday. It wants members to strike against a bill that would allow Beijing to extradite fugitives in Hong Kong to mainland China. The move follows massive demonstrations on Sunday. Matt Rivers joins us once again on this. Matt, great to talk to you about this again. I mean, you were on the show yesterday and we were talking exactly about this risk and now the trade unions are coming out and going we recognize not only the potential human rights implications but the perceptions that this creates for hong kong for workers for trade conditions is critical yeah absolutely i mean i think and that's the big difference i think between this particular movement that we're experiencing in 2019 and let's say the last real big protest movement, the pro-democracy movements of 2014, 2019, you've got serious buy-in from communities outside just young liberal students, which generally made up the bulk of the protesters in 2014. Fast forward to now, and you have buy-in from business groups, from trade groups, from people who uh, are saying, you know what, we're not going to allow uh, this bill, if we can help it, to impact the business community. And what we saw during the day today, and what we were kind of waiting to see happen is, well, what kind of concrete action would the trade unions take? Would they encourage their workers to strike? Would businesses here in Hong Kong allow their workers to walk out in solidarity? And it does appear, both anecdotally and through official statements, that there will be people who are walking off the job tomorrow. Everyone from you know, service workers to teachers to we've even heard rumblings in some of the larger financial firms here. They might you know, turn a blind eye if some of their uh, employees walk out during the day. So there is going to be an impact in the business community here. And it just shows you that this particular movement has a wider cross-section of the Hong Kong uh, citizenry than, I think, protest movements in years past. Does it make a difference, Matt? Is there any indication that the executive in Hong Kong will change their mind when faced with pretty high pressure, no doubt, from the Chinese who want to do this? Yeah, it's a great question, and there's just no way we can answer uh, it as of yet. We're not sure if this will ultimately change anything. However, though, Julia, I did just try and ask that question to Carrie Lam, the chief executive of Hong Mm. Kong. She was walking into a public event that she was at tonight, and I threw the question at her. She didn't respond. So we're not sure if she has any sort of indication that she might try and repeal this bill. But publicly, even this morning in a press conference, she said she is moving forward with this. And I think that is generally the feeling you have amongst average Hong Kongers. You know, we were out on the streets today and I talked to one guy who was very in favor of the protest. But he said, look, I don't ultimately think it's going to change anything, but that's not going to stop me from protesting. That said, if you talk to protest organizers, they are saying we have more buy-in from ordinary Hong Kongers, from people in the business community that we have had before, and they think that that could make a difference. We're not going to know for a little while, but the fact remains that this movement certainly has some more cross-sectional buy-in than we've seen in the past. And we're going to be back with you tomorrow for uh, those latest uh, protests, of course, on Wednesday. Matt Rivers, great job. Thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on. Uh, The Wall Street Journal is reporting 
that the half-brother of North Korean leader was a CIA informant. Kim Jong-nam was killed at the airport in Malaysia's capital in 2017 when two women smeared his face with a nerve agent. South Korean and U.S. officials have blamed North Korea, but Pyongyang has repeatedly denied any involvement. A helicopter crash landed on the roof of a New York City high-rise on Monday. Office employees say they felt the building shake and that the stairwells were so packed it took up to 30 minutes to evacuate. The pilot, Tim McCormick, was killed in the crash. Police say McCormick was waiting out the rain but for some reason decided it was safe to fly. All right, still to come here on First Move. A bolt out of the blue. Uber's newest rival hits the streets of London. And have investors lost their appetite for Beyond Meat? We'll be speaking to a stakeholder to get his take. I tell you what, no. That's the cheat. Stay with us. We're back in two. Welcome back to First Move, live from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, where we are looking like a further addition to the gains that we've seen so far this week. A positive start for U.S. markets expected here. New stimulus measures kicking in from China, of course, on the infrastructure, helping to boost sentiment globally, I think, at this moment. We are looking to add to a sixth straight session of gains if we manage to close in the green territory today. We've gained around 70% back of what stocks last last a month, as we were discussing earlier on in the show. The president also adding an interesting mix to the equation here today, saying in a tweet this morning that the euro and other currencies have devalued against the dollar, quote, and that, of course, adding to a problems for the U.S. economy. Looking at currencies, though, with the dollar gaining against some safe havens like the yen and the Swiss franc this morning. We also saw the yuan strengthening after hitting the lowest levels of the year on Monday. That tweaked by the Chinese central bank government. Let's talk this through. Some interesting comments in the last 24 hours. Stephen Englander is the global head of G10 FX Research at Standard Chartered Bank and joins me now. Great to have you with us. Pleasure to be here. Let's talk about the president's tweet yes. to begin blaming the devaluation of currencies like the euro but other nations as well against the US dollar for some of the challenges of the US economy. Thoughts? Well, other administrations have made similar comments yeah. and, they, and so has President Trump but he's actually been much better on rates than he has been on FX in terms of calling directions. <laughs> Interesting. You mean in terms of the follow-through that you've seen from central banks and, and in markets? And the follow-through that you see in markets indeed. So let's talk about rates then. I mean, is the president right when he's saying actually that he believes the Fed should be cutting rates? The markets arguably believe him at this stage too. Do you think we get rate cuts this year? Well, I think that the, the Fed looks to be pretty close. They, are, they want to be preemptive in case there's any downside. Um, but you can't forget the terrorists, that, the, that they actually don't do anything. If the numbers come in okay in July and if the... Um, June G20 meeting is fine, so there's no abrupt trade issue. Um, the Fed might take a pass in August, and then the question is what follows after that. You know, I mean, we had guests on after the payroll report on Friday saying, look, that's a smoking gun effectively for the Federal Reserve here. And we, we could see them at least signaling in June that they plan to cut in July. I mean, we've got a sequencing problem here because if the Federal Reserve don't give a signal that perhaps they're willing to cut rates in in July and then nothing comes of the G20, then the market's going to be really rattled. Uh, like, indeed, how I, does the Fed play this? Because it's been backed into a corner by 
market expectations. And here we are with stocks 2% off the highs. Well, I think they're going to be very careful. And they are going to say that they are ready to move preemptively in case there's signs of weakness. Um, I don't think the data have been quite weak enough for them to move in June. And the market would be very disappointed if they didn't give an overt signal. There's about an 85% move priced in. Um, so they'll, they'll have to be very careful, but there is room for disappointment. Goldman Sachs came out this morning and said, actually, we don't believe they'll cut rates at all this year. I feel like the range of possibilities here, even as far as analyst expectations, is incredibly wide here. That I guess the only thing perhaps you could predict here for, for investors is volatility, because the range of options here is so wide. Well, it is. Look, there's a plausible story that says um, trade talks go okay, inflation edges up again and the economy's fine and they don't move. Um, but if inflation keeps falling or if one of the trade negotiations go poorly or if it turns out that the economy is soft, any one of those would lead to the Fed easing. So the probability weight across scenarios seems to be leaning a little bit towards ease. That's a lot. That's a lot of ores. But when we wrap them up, the, the greater likelihood is easing here. Talk to me about your call on the US dollar, because despite the fact that we've seen sort of rate expectations coming down, that the dollar has remained pretty strong here on a relative basis. Why and why are you now saying actually that could continue and actually a fall in the dollar could be delayed or pushed back? Well, there are two scenarios that could uh, lead to dollar weakness. Um, one is the straightforward scenario that the rest of Europe in particular isn't as bad as it looks. Yeah. And the Fed, you know, moves and Europe doesn't. And, you know, we have rates convergence. The second story is if, if there is actually a trade war, I think that it, there, if, if it turns out that the U.S. moves to the next uh, three yeah, round of tariffs, yeah. um, I think that there would be massive risk off and all the good news we've seen over the last week or so would be... Filter away again. Well, it would collapse yeah. entirely. So I, I think both, you know, in one case, it's like a friendly story that the world is catching up to the U.S. and it's probably good for emerging markets. The trade war case is full on risk off. Do you buy the dollar in that in that worst case scenario? If we saw no conclusion from the G20, we saw the president saying, fine, we're going to add tariffs to the remaining $325 billion. Does the US dollar get stronger in that scenario relative to just about everything else? When you get tired of buying yen, you'll turn it and buy dollars as well. <laughs> okay. But I, I think yen would be the first winner on that scenario. Traditional safe havens, yeah. yen, the Swiss franc, perhaps yes. even gold, I guess, in that circumstance. I'm clear on gold. Um, I'm clear on gold, but really? I'd say that stay the, away from gold. We like gold in general, but you know, I, I, on, on the risk-off scenario, it's unclear how it will trade. Well, there you have it, Stephen England. Uh, the worst-case scenario played out. We'll see. G20 going to be incredibly important, though. I think that's the message, Stephen England. Thank you, thank so, you so, much. so much. The global head of G10 FX there at Standard Chartered Bank. Stay with us. We're back after this with the market open.
first move that was the opening bell at the New York Stock Exchange this Tuesday and we are seeing a higher open for stocks as anticipated if we can add to the gains that we've seen this will be six straight sessions of gains just two percent away from record highs as we were discussing watch the tech stocks today given noises and conversation in congress regarding a potential antitrust actions yeah yeah i say let me walk you through the global movers and move swiftly on there i'm a skeptic on regulation at least in the short term broadcom in focus entering into a statement of work with apple revealed in an sec filing it's a two-year deal where broadcom will supply apple with radio frequency parts to use in ipads iphones and apple watches barnes and noble also in focus it looks like a bidding war for this one remember the bookstore are looking to go private here book distribution company readerlink is uh, adding its name into the mix here according to the wall street journal it said last week it was going to hedge fund elliott management for some 680 million dollars the breakup fee 17 and a half billion dollars beyond meat under some pressure today jp morgan chase downgraded the stock from overweight to neutral it's kept its target price of $120. Shares are currently trading around $150. JP Morgan saying, look, this is purely a valuation call. They're also, uh, the company also releasing a new version of its meatless burger this week. It said it looks, tastes and cooks even more like beef. Greg Smith was an early investor in Beyond Meat and has increased his stake since the IPO. Fantastic to have you with us, Greg. Thank you for having me. How excited are you by the prospect of the company announcing an even meatier I'm, I'm, very, I'm very excited. I think it's an uh, incredible company. I think in 10 years, people are going to look back at May 2nd, the IPO date of the company, and say this was peak cholesterol in America. I think that we're going to see a secular shift in the dining patterns of Americans over the coming years to more of a plant-based diet, and I think the Beyond Meat marked the beginning of that shift. Peak cholesterol. Peak cholesterol. Look out Pfizer it. and Lipitor. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> yeah, yes. Come on. Oh, then that's an alternative uh, option <laughs> for a trade. Um, JP Morgan this morning saying, look, it's a bit over its skis in the short term. I was making the point that we've got a $10 billion plus valuation on a company right. now when the market in eight to nine years is expected to be some $22 billion. Even just on that metric, would you agree that perhaps it's a bit lofty at these levels? I, I disagree. I've been a buyer really? since the IPO. I've continued to add to my position even from the private market. I'm taking the long game view here and I look at the plant based. Uh, dairy market, and if you witness what happened in plant-based dairy in this in the, in the country, there's currently 13% of purchases are for plant-based dairy alternatives. Right. If you were to extrapolate that to the meat market, meat market's 17 times that of dairy. So a 1.4 trillion dollar market. If Beyond Meat and the competitors that will come as the category broadens were to get even 10% of that market, it's a 140 billion dollar market. My personal view is I think we could see Beyond Meat trading at three to five times levels in the next several years. It's going to be a massive category. There will be many winners, and I think Beyond Meat's a leader. We can, we can go back and forth on the numbers, and I do want to do that, but just in the short term, just if we look at the technicals here, and I think this is the point that JP Morgan's making, yep. um, when you know that over half the float of this has been shorted, so people are saying, actually, look, they think it's a bit bubblicious here. Yep. Are you just saying as an investor, look, I've averaged in here on the way up, even if this thing pulls back 30% in the short term, I like the story so much, I'll 
I'll sit on that, I'll wear it, and I'll just perhaps even buy an average in a bit lower I, here. I do. I, I'm taking, again, the long view. Yeah. Uh, I look at it as I'm probably buying a $500 bill with uh, with maybe for $100. I don't yes. know if the stock's going to go to 80 tomorrow or 200 but I do know in the next several years it's going to be a massive company, and I believe it'll be much, significantly higher than where it is today. And even if it goes to 80 in the next week, you'll be like, look, then it's a real I think bargain it's a, I think it's an opportunity, yes. What's the level that you've got in, though, on average? I mean, I know you were buying your, a private investor earlier on, so it's post-IPO that you I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have a, probably an average cost below the IPO price, so I'll, nice. I'll leave it at that. Okay, so this and, is, that's, a, yes. well, that's a key point. Yes. Yeah, so you're smiling all the way to the bank here. You've said about the numbers, the guidance that you think the company provided was light. Talk to me about do. how light, because that's also going to be important, I think, when we get round to the next quarter and the numbers and justifying what we're seeing right now. Well, look, I think you look at the landscape. They're in 30,000 points of distribution today. Yeah. I personally believe that could triple in the next several years. So if you look at 30,000 points of distribution doing, let's say, my estimates are 250 million in sales for this year, uh, multiply that by three, you can pretty easily get to 750 million in sales. Most of their sales have predominantly been their uh, burger patty. Yes. So most of the sales and sales growth. I think what people need to look at is the sausage, which is coming on strong. And many would argue it's even a better product than the burger. Wow. And also you're going to see the one pound uh, ground beef packet coming out. Don't forget, ground beef is probably the biggest seller in the meat department yeah. in a store. Mm. So if you triple their points of distribution in the U.S. and internationally, you add the, the sausage, you add ground beef package. So that should be bigger than the burger which could go and do tacos and meatballs, as well as uh, the sausage patty, the breakfast sausage patty. Okay, awesome sales pitch. The, the counter to that would be Nestle, Tyson Foods, all the big names that are looking in on this. And what we see right now is when we get an announcement from the likes of Impossible Brands that has Impossible Burgers, yep. it, it floats all boats. Everyone benefits. It's seen as a sort of PR opportunity for the sector right now. How long does that continue? And my other challenge here would be supply, because when we spoke to the CEO on IPO day, we talked about pea protein and the, the, the supply issues that they've had in the past and the risk that, given the kind of growth that you're talking about, those supply issues become a factor again, and in a way more material way, again. Uh, I think so. I think the company's taken the necessary steps. I'd like to see them continue to invest in more manufacturing, acquiring more extruders, right. um, growing their international presence. And I think supply will come on. I've been involved with other high growth situations where companies have had a high class problem meeting demand. And I think we'll, we'll witness beyond do it. As it relates to competition, I think competition's good. It's going to broaden the category. Personally, Beyond Meat is, is my preference over Impossible, which has different health attributes to it. Yes. The Impossible has soy. It's not non-GMO. Uh, it has gluten. So uh, it's going to put that in a different category. Um, but um, I think there'll be multiple winners. Ultimately, if you look at the CPG category at large, and you see massive competition, most of the big brands might have market share in the 30s. So if Beyond Meat were to get market share of a $100 billion plus market in the 30s, it's, it's a pretty large business. Yeah. And it makes the stock today look cheap in my opinion. For now, there's not too many players that they're competing with each other. No, they, they have a lead and they're going to continue to invest in R&D. And frankly, I look at my two teenage children. They don't want our, our parents, our grandparents' products. They want new, modern day, millennial products. 
uh, that were built for them. So I look at Beyond Meat as meeting the needs of the new millennial generation. Greg Smith of Evolution VC Partners, great to have you Thank with you us. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Peak cholesterol, that was my takeaway from that conversation. Thank you. All right. At the Economic Club in Washington, Uber's CEO has been giving his view on why the company's IPO flopped. Wow, there's a real tale of two halves here. Uber's stock is still slightly below its IPO price of $45 a share. Claire Sebastian joins us now with all the details. So some justification here on why the IPO struggled. Market conditions, it was sort of peak tension between the United States and China. I guess we give them that, Claire. What else did they have to say? Yeah, Julia, this, uh, we've heard uh, Darak Shahi of Uber talk about the IPO before in a widely reported memo to staff uh, after the event and in the earnings call uh, just, just recently saying that, you know, he urges people to look to the long term and beyond that initial uh, problematic start that they had. But we've never heard him go quite this far uh, in addressing what else was going on, as you say, uh, in the market at that time. Take a listen. The... The timing of our IPO was very much aligned with uh, the, our president's tariff wars the same day. So I think we got caught up in a bit of a market swirl. And there's nothing you can do about that. And what I tell the team is, is in short term, the, the market can be a voting machine, but long term, it's a weighing machine. And we are focused on the weighing. We have a six-month mock-up, so no one at the company cares anyway what the stock price says now. It's a bunch of traders right. going in and out. So just it doesn't really affect us. So, yeah, as you remember, Julian, May 10th was the, the same day that that tariff increase on $200 billion of Chinese goods went into effect. That was also the date of, uh, of Uber's IPO. So this definitely was a market swell. But that doesn't take away from the fact that uh, Uber still has an uphill climb on many fronts. The path to profitability is something you and I have talked about before. He addressed this. He says uh, the next two, three, four years are going to be about growth, but they're confident they can be profitable in the long term. He's, extreme, he's confident the company uh, is extremely well capitalized. And he talks about his broader vision to become a platform, an Amazon for mobility, essentially a one-stop shop for all your transportation uh, and some of your food needs. So it was really a very forward-looking speech there. Yeah, and of course losing the CMO and the COO in the last few days as well. Leadership going to be interesting here. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on the first move. But when we come back, call it the power of Poshmark. I'll talk to the CEO of the innovative social network e-retailer that encourages you to clear out your closet and make a few dollars in the process. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. And we're in the chat room with the popular mobile shopping app Poshmark which is disrupting the norms of traditional retail. Poshmark is a social network similar to the likes of Instagram or Pinterest, except here, everything is for sale. This is important. It launched eight years ago as a way to make money selling extra items that allow people to make extra money from selling their items in their closet. Today, it's grown into a community of 40 million users, 5 million of which are sellers on the app. The company reached $1 billion worth of transactions and it's reportedly worth some $650 million. Today, Poshmark is announcing that it's now expanding beyond fashion and making its first move into the home goods sector. Joining me now in the chat room is Manish Chandra. He's founder and CEO of Poshmark. Great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Just trying to encapsulate what Poshmark is, but in your own words, how do you view 
the people that are using the app at this moment, but also what you represent for, for users and people that access the, uh, the app? Well, for us, it was always about combining people and technology to create a place where people can buy and sell and make it very simple. Uh, we started with a focus on fashion, and today we are expanding to home decor. Yes. Why? Well, we follow our users. So when we started, we were focused on the women's market. Our users wanted to sell men's clothes and kids' clothes. And now they've been asking us and actually secretly listing home products. So it's time to support them. <laughs> so under the guise of their closets, Other, they yes. were listing all sorts of things. They are. Well, I made the point, and I wanted this point in the intro so that we talked about it. For me, one of the biggest differences, and we had the Pinterest CEO on, was the fact that you can go on Pinterest, you can find an item that you like, but there's no access link to actually buying that. Whereas on your site, everything that you see, you can acquire, and I think that's very important. Yes, absolutely. Everything is for sale, but more importantly, with everything, there's a human being attached to it. What's missing in commerce today is people, okay. and what we brought is people to your products. If you go back to the old uh, school stores, there was always somebody there to help you. Where's that in e-commerce today? Well, it's quite fascinating that as we've seen commerce itself get disrupted and the shift to e-commerce, we're now seeing companies say, hey, bricks and mortar still matter here. It's just about a better customer experience. Yes. You're arguing that too. It's basically about empowering the sellers to have those conversations to really service their customers, but at the same time providing them with all of the services that big e-commerce retailers have. You know, standardized shipping, so everything ships to their priority, uh, customer dispute management, payments, payment processing, so they don't have to worry about anything. They can focus on their customers. So how do you make money as the app? Talk me through this, because you take a cut of the sales price, basically. Yeah, we take a cut of the sales price. So our philosophy from day one was, we want to make money when our sellers succeed. We don't want to make money off them. And so we have a partnership with them. We call it the 80-20 partnership. For every sale they make, they keep 80% and we take 20%. But in return for 20%, we provide them everything that they need uh, to run their store, to market their store, to actually sell. And the result today is that 80 to 90% of their shoppers are repeat shoppers. Wow. And customers are spending somewhere between 23 to 27 minutes a day on the platform. So you have this very hyper-engaged community, which is very unique about Poshmark. Okay, the only... I guess other cost there is that if you're going to ship something, you as the seller pays the shipping, is that right? So no. me as the buyer, no. no? No, so we take care, we give you the shipping label, you just ship. The buyer pays for shipping ah, okay. and we take care of providing with all of the infrastructure. Okay, okay, that's important too. Okay, so that's how, in essence, you make money. Where's the value here then? Because you just said there's really high engagement for people that are using the website. So is the monetary value for you and the money that you've been raising about the sheer financials of what cut you're taking on what's selling here, or is it the fact that you have 50 million registered users, 5 million sellers here? Because there's a lot of data. Yeah, uh, yes, um, so for us, the focus has been really partnering with our sellers and monetizing on the transactions. But as you bring a lot of users together, there's tremendous value in the level of engagement and interactions they have which allows us to really expand. So if you think about where we are expanding, we're expanding to the home decor market, but really that's not the limit of social commerce. We feel that we can solve problems in many other categories. And today we are only in US. We've, uh, yeah. We also want to go beyond the borders and really start to, to launch into different countries. Where next? So for us, we've taken a baby step in Canada. Yes. 
And uh, the goal is to really use that as a launching point for hopefully many other countries, including UK, Australia, maybe Asia, uh, and certainly Latin America. Talk to me about some of the people that are using this as an entrepreneurial opportunity as well, because you've got sellers on your website, and it's a mix of the closets, because the closets aren't worth quite this much, but also wholesale products as well, and they're making six, seven-figure salaries. Yes, so our sellers have scaled up their businesses. They are now running legitimate boutiques, and they've created new fashion brands. For example, we have a seller, Suzanne Cannon, who's created three brands, and she's doing over a million dollars in sales. We have another seller, Evelyn, uh, who's created a very large boutique out of North Carolina. She has both physical stores and a very large business on Poshmark that's almost touching seven figures. So you start to see sellers innovating, and the reason they're innovating is that they're creating new kind of, what I would call direct-to-consumer businesses right. on Poshmark, where they are going direct to their uh, shoppers. The obvious counter to this would be, look, eBay, Amazon, the stores are on there. What makes you different from the ability of even those sellers to go on these places and sell what they want? We really bring people into the forefront. So for us, the social aspects of our platform are really critical. I mean, if you think about it, let's say you're about to buy a shoe or a shirt or a dress, the ability to have that conversation, interactively ask the seller, seller being able to customize your preferences and bundle things for you is unique. And if you can think about that in the home decor market, imagine being able to get advice live. It's not possible. Bringing it back to the consumer very quickly, we're at the New York Stock Exchange. Eyes on an IPO at some point in the future? We certainly continue to look at growth and, and, and all kinds of future possibilities, but uh, no comment on that. Right <laughs> Not ruling it out. I like that response. Manish Chandra, thank you so much to see you on Poshmark. We look forward to watching your progress and getting you back here at the New York Stock Exchange perhaps sometime soon. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Up next, getting into gear, can Elon Musk get investors charged up again? We look ahead to Tesla's annual shareholder meeting. That's today. We're back in two. Welcome back to First Move and a look at today's boardroom brief. Shares in retailer Ted Baker are down over 25% in London after the British firm issued a profit warning over what it called, quote, extremely difficult trading in early 2019. The warning highlights the challenges facing its new CEO after the company's founder and longtime head resigned in March over misconduct allegations. Starbucks wants its cups to go further, so it's taking them to the airport. London Gatwick passengers are being given a choice. Take a reusable cup or pay extra for a paper one. Customers return the reusable cups at drop-off stations. Starbucks hopes to eliminate 7,000 paper cups during the one-month trial. That's a brilliant idea. Can Elon Musk get investors charged up again? That will be the key question at Tesla's annual meeting. After what has been a pretty rough ride for the company's shareholders, the stock is down 33% since this time last year. CNN's Matt Egan has the details. Well, I mean, that's a pretty big gripe for investors. Never mind anything else, Matt. It's been a pretty turbulent 12 months. What are we expecting from the AGM? That's right. It, it really has been a wild ride for Tesla and its shareholders over the last 12 months. You know, it was just um, last summer that Elon Musk sent out that infamous tweet saying that uh, the company could possibly be taken pro private for $420 a share. Now, obviously, that deal never materialized. Musk was fined. Tesla was fined. And Musk had to step down as uh, 
chairman. And as you mentioned, the stock has performed really poorly over the past year as well. So I think that today's meeting will be an opportunity to gauge just how frustrated shareholders are with Tesla and Elon Musk. So I think there's three really important things to watch for um, as far as the votes go. Now, one, Institutional Shareholder Services, the shareholder watchdog group, is urging investors to vote against Ira Aaron Prize. Now, he is a Tesla director. He's also sitting on the compensation committee, and ISS is citing concerns about Tesla's pay practices. It seems unlikely that he will actually get rejected, but if he gets a low level of support, I think that would be pretty telling. Um, now, uh, also, the ISS and Glass-Lewis are actually urging uh, shareholders to reject Tesla's plan for a 2019 equity incentive. Uh, Tesla wants permission to issue 12.5 million shares to use to pay employees and executives, um, but that would actually dilute current shareholders by almost 7%, and Glass-Lewis said that would be excessive. And the third thing to watch is there is a shareholder proposal to form a new public policy committee that would oversee Tesla's uh, environmental regulatory policy. So we'll have to see how all three of these things go because they all speak to putting greater oversight on Tesla and Musk. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see. They've, stock has generally rallied quite dramatically after these AGMs. The thing is, can Elon Musk pull something out of the bag this time? We shall see. Matt Egan, great job. Thank you for that. All right, quick look at how the equity markets are performing as we wrap up the show here. We are in the green. Can we make it six straight sessions of gains for U.S. majors? We shall see. We're back in a couple of hours with The Express. But for now, you've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 